Yes, you can turn your Bibles to Paul's first letter to Timothy. We're in chapter 6. We'll be looking closely at verses 8 to 12 this morning. That's found on page 993 in the Pew Bibles. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, what is the first of the Ten Commandments? Two, what is the last of the Ten Commandments? Three, what should be more important than anything else in our life? And four, God provides for us, but do we still need to work for the things that we need? First Timothy chapter 6, we'll begin reading, begin reading back in verse 3. This is the word of God. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There ends reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you address every area in our lives of any significance. And Lord, we thank you for this passage that reminds us to keep things in perspective. Lord, we pray that you would help us because we do have a propensity to turn our eyes away from you and all the goodness that you've shown to us the things that are passing, the things that in the end end up being insignificant. Lord, help us to learn from your word this morning. We pray that you would teach us what true contentment is. Lord, we know that we have to learn that through our lives, but we know that we get the information that we need from your word. Speak to us, we pray. Send your Holy Spirit in a special way to help the preacher and help all of us who are here. And we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the focus of our lives, our priorities, are matters of spiritual concern. I think we're all 
aware of that. But that includes the way that we look at the material things that we have in life, including our perception, or I'm sorry, our perspective on our money, on our money. If we step back, we look at what Paul has been teaching Timothy. Paul's been teaching Timothy that he needs to be a godly young man. He needs to be a good leader. He needs, needs to be solid on the word of God. He needs to resist all kinds of temptations. And included in that is the temptation to make money a god. Apparently, there were some teachers in that day in the Christian church and others that were Christians who saw their godliness, who saw their devotion to Christianity as a means of material gain. Material gain. Nothing new under the sun. We see that all around us. But here Paul is saying, Timothy, stay away from that kind of mentality. Now that's very specifically pointed to this young minister, and it obviously speaks very directly to ministers then and throughout the ages. But there's a general warning here as well against materialism. An inordinate, an inordinate love for stuff that robs our contentment because it obscures our trust in our God who provides for us. Actually touches on a fundamental of the Christian faith. What do I mean by that? It touches on the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And we have this propensity to make things into miniature gods. And none of us who are devout Christians would obviously fall down and worship items I trust. I trust, but you get what I'm saying about our propensity to put things sometimes before God and treating them almost as miniature gods. It also has to do with the last commandment, you shall not covet, which seems to sum up all of the other commandments. In some ways we can say that, that many of those other commandments are broken because of different gods and covetousness, but I can't get into that this morning. But this is a common human problem common human problem. Worldly-minded people are consistent when they put all their trust and have earthly gods. They're consistent with their belief. That's not to say that all unbelievers are materialists. But it's not inconsistent for a person who believes that this life is it to put all their investment in the things of this world. But for Christians, it's in direct conflict with our faith, it's inconsistent with our faith. It comes down to priorities in life. It comes down to what we live for. What drives us to do what we do. Last time, if we wanted to summarize what Paul was saying, it was this. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. You didn't come into the world with anything. You're not going to leave this world with anything. We elaborated on that last week. This time, Paul addresses money specifically. Money, a necessity, but to love money is bad news. Paul actually uses a word here that is love and silver put together. Philagoria. Phila, you're familiar with that as love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But here, philagoria, love, of silver, argoria, 
is the word for silver. Well, people do horrible things for the love of money. Rob, steal, sometimes even murder. For most of us, it's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more subtle of a draw. We have these oppositional obsessions. Maybe obsession is a little too strong of a word, but we can struggle with attachment. But I'm purposely going to use an extreme. Think of the person of, the fictitious person of Ebenezer Scrooge. Everybody should know his name. If you don't know his name, he is the main character in Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And he was obsessed. He was obsessed with his money. He was a miserly money lender, and he was obsessed with his money until he had a life-changing experience. I don't want to be a spoiler if you're not familiar with the story, but it does have a happy ending. But he's so miserly and so hung up on his money that he's neglecting the people around him terribly. If I were going to Christianize a Christmas carol, which may sound odd, I would say that the bigger problem that Ebenezer Scrooge had was that he had another God. And that God was money. And what was in jeopardy wasn't even necessarily, most importantly, his relationships. If I was going to Christianize it, I would say his most important danger that he was facing was the loss of his soul. Scrooge is God, money. Jesus can't be more clear about the love of money. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of your body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus can't be any more clear. Then jump over to Luke chapter 12. It really is amazing how many squabbles are fought, sometimes extreme fighting within families over inheritances. They, they bring out surprising things in people, sometimes very ugly things in people. I talk to, to nurses who deal with end-of-life issues when families start to squabble over inheritances. Talk to lawyers who happily line their pockets over family squabbles over inheritance. I hear Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there, will, there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Very clear warnings. There is a conflict between our gaining as much stuff in this earth, there's a conflict between that and how we invest in heaven. And even if the whole earth was your storage space, and you could fill the whole earth with your stuff, it will do you no good when an eternity faces you. When an eternity faces you. So we have to be very careful that we're not distracted by shiny objects. The Apostle says that when we are, when money becomes our God, when things become our God, we put ourselves in great danger. Verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But this isn't just true, by the way, for rich people. This is true for rich people. It's true for middle class people. It's true for poor people. Whose focus becomes the material things of this world. It's a trap. John Bunyan, in his famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, addresses an individual named Demas. He's playing on the character of Paul's former companion who loved the present world and had kind of left the ministry and left the fellowship. I'm using a truncated version from Dangerous Journey, a truncated version of his Pilgrim's Progress. Christian's on his journey to the celestial city. He's with his companion, Hopeful. And the issue for Christian, or the pilgrim, and for Hopeful and any of his companions that are headed for the celestial city is basically stay focused. Stay on the path. Keep the things of God in view. Keep the celestial city in view as well. But in the meantime, in the in-between, walk in his ways. Here's how the author of Dangerous Journey puts it. A little off the road was a hill called Lucre, that's money. A little off the road was a hill called Lucre. And from it, a gentleman called Demas shouted to them, Ho! Turn aside, there's silver mine here. With very little trouble, you'll be rich. Let's go and see, said Hopeful, hopefully. Not I, said Christian. I have heard of this place too, that it is dangerous. Not dangerous at all, said Demas, though he blushed with shame as he spoke. So Christian hurried hopeful past. 
By now, the citizens of fair speech were coming into view. They had no hesitation when Demas beckoned them. They were only too pleased to dig for silver. Lead us to the mine, they said. But as they looked greedily over the brink, we're told they lost their footing and fell in and were smothered by the damps that commonly arise. For certain, they were never seen again. Certainly, there are some pursuits of money that are bad in and of themselves. Stealing, gambling, cheating, all those things. But even believers, when we have our perspective and our priorities out of whack, we can make the pursuit of things and money our highest priority. People have sacrificed their health, becoming workaholics. They've sacrificed their families by neglecting the more personal things, by pursuing material things. Damage their communion with God because there are other little gods obscuring their view. And some even to the demise of their own souls. Paul reminds us that we need to get back to the blessed basics. Now I can't find in the Bible anywhere where hard work is a sin. But misplaced priorities in life certainly can be. Maybe a good question for us to ask is, what if everything we had except for the bare essentials was taken away? Where would our faith be? You see, we constantly deal with that tension, don't we? Between all the things I want and all the things I need. Anyone ever ask you the question, what would you do if you won the lottery? Most of us, I don't know about all of us, but most of us would say, well, I'd have to start playing to begin with. Maybe you do. The question is sometimes asked, what would you do if you won the lottery? Now, don't be tempted, but the Mega Millions estimated jackpot right now in Michigan, 33 million. Powerball estimated 291 million. Some guy in 2022 won 2.04 billion. Sometimes I'm asked, what would you do with all that money? I say, are you kidding me? I can think of ways to use that money. I admit, while I eventually get there, it's not all given to charity. It's not the place I start. But isn't it a temptation to imagine what you could do with all of that wealth? It's very temptation, tem tempting. All the things I want. Maybe not even all for me, but, but for others as well, so I can be that benevolent person that everybody is drawn to. Most people who win the lottery find out that they have friends they never knew they had. Their popularity is fleeting. 
and sometimes, frankly, self-destructive. But that aside, we need to think about do we have all we need? And it is relative. In every culture, basic needs seem to be different. In, in, in the United States, we have an amazing amount of resources. Most of us have the basics for the most part. For Paul, obviously, the needs were very basic. But when it comes down to what we really need, Paul indicates that if we have the very basics, we should be content. And everything added to that would be considered a luxury. We can think of maybe more things that we need in our culture because of the way it is. But going back to the basics, comes down to what we really need. We do need money. And we may need lots of legitimate stuff, but the point is, are we content? And would we be content if we had the very minimal bare necessities, like some of our brothers and sisters throughout the world have? Here's a daring prayer. Here's a daring prayer. I'm fairly certain that I use this any and every time I preach on money or things. It's a prayer from Proverbs. Proverbs 30, 7 to 9. Here's a very daring prayer. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. We all want to be honest people. But here's the hard part. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's a prayer that is really a prayer seeking contentment, seeking satisfied lives. The only place to start, the place to start with a satisfied life is to be settled with God. That can only happen through repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting our entire lives to our Creator. Until that happens, we'll always be restless and agitated. So that's the most fundamental thing. That's the most basic thing that we need. But then there is the issue of material stuff. But we need to keep going back to the fact that we'll never be satisfied unless we're right with God. That's our greatest need. And if that's not met, we'll never be satisfied with anything. Try as we might. And we'll never be satisfied if the bar for our satisfaction is anything in this world. If our bar for satisfaction is going to be our money or our possessions or even our relationships or our fame or even our health, we're going to be gravely disappointed and unsatisfied. But if we're right with God, we can have everything in perspective. Satisfied souls. 
here in the in-between. Here in that in-between I touched on last time. We come into the world with nothing. We deal with stuff all of our lives. And then we leave with nothing. But it's that in-between. I don't want to get too personal. I know some people don't like pastors that are too real. But I'll confess before you that I have not discovered the secret of contentment. I want to discover the complete secret of contentment like our brother Paul did. Don't get me wrong, I have it good and I know I have it good. There are times when I find myself discontent, ungrateful, even coveting. And I won't give you the details of how I covet. But that's my confession. And it's been suggested by some that, well, when you start to covet other people, think of people who have less. And then you'll realize how good you have it. That just makes me sad. That just makes me feel guilty. It maybe makes me a little more thankful, but it doesn't, doesn't make me any more content. So I'm trying to learn the secret of contentment, and I trust you are too. When I think of the in-between and I think of that struggle, I can't help but think of Ephesians chapter 1, and I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. My mind often goes to Psalm 73 where the psalmist is looking at the world and all the evil people around him who seem to never be sick and seem to prosper. And he steps back and he goes to the sanctuary and then he says, oh, well, I realize now how good I have it. I am right with God and they're all doomed. And that's a wonderful place to go if you're struggling with that kind of issue. The two passages for me would be that, Psalm 73, and then here, Ephesians chapter 1. This stuff that Paul is referring to is ours in Christ. And so what I have to do and what you have to do is remember who you are in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When I was reading that, were you along with me in counting our blessings? In that passage alone, is just scratching the surface of the riches that we have in Christ. And so that when I and when we start to, to look at the world and the things around us, and we start to covet things that other people have or covet things that other people can do because they have resources that we don't have. When we look at whatever other people might have, especially when we look at unbelievers, but, but even when we covet believers, we need to keep going back to the riches that we have in Christ. That is to encourage us in the in-between. Even as in the in-between we have our eyes fixed on the celestial city in which unimaginable glories, unimaginable riches, unimaginable blessings are in store for those who believe. Again, when I start to look around and covet, I need to remember who I am in Christ and what I have in Christ. As John Newton puts it in his hymn, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. We're all trying to learn the secret of contentment trying to learn what it really means to have satisfied souls. To have no other gods before us. To put away all coveting and all discontent. So Lord, help us to set our minds on things that last. Enjoy the good things of life. But Lord, teach us to bask in your goodness, to show us now, even as we are in Christ, the blessings that we have as we look forward to an unimaginable eternity. Let's pray. Lord our God, you are so good to us. Lord, anyone in this room and everyone in this room who professes and knows Jesus Christ as Savior can testify to the amazing riches that we have in you. Lord, please forgive us when we're distracted by things that are lesser. Things that are good sometimes, things that you provide sometimes, or things that we lust after to our shame. Lord, help us Help us to remember your goodness to us and 
to remember that you have satisfied for our souls and you have provided for us riches beyond our imagination. Lord, teach us as we grow in the grace and knowledge of you to truly be content with the things that remain and to have the things that pass in clear perspective. Grant us that grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.